Hey, welcome to the Living Unintered Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Johnson, and today we have another stellar guest, uh, Rob Lohman from the uh, wonderful state of Colorado, which I was just there at the end of our tour and representing Free Spiritual Community, uh, which turned out to be one of our favorite stops on the tour. But Rob, today the show is about you. Uh, we're going to talk about your journey, uh, your quest to improve not just your mental health, but those around you. So again, welcome to the show. And uh, how you doing today? Hey, thanks a bunch. I love it. I love the shirt you're wearing. Free is a, free is a great place here in Colorado. And uh, I've actually got a big event coming up at Free soon. So I'm I'm all about it. So I'm excited for what you're doing and to dive in to kind of talk a little about my journey and, and connect with your audience. And so thanks for the invitation. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, when I set down this mental health path five years ago uh, after our, our son passed away from overdose, you know, I could really be honest with you, I could kind of care less about mental health. Um, I was busy running my investment firm, making money, traveling the world, you know, everything was going really good. And that's a great plan for success until it isn't, you know, yeah. and uh, like most of us at some point in our lives, it's a hundred percent probability something awful will happen, whether it's self-induced or by accident or whatever. And so I was looking at your story and kind of um, where you've come from, uh, kind of the ashes that you've came out of. Uh, let's talk a little bit about you, a little bit about your background, some of your projects, and uh, maybe we can dive into things, all mental health, substance use disorders, and addiction. Sure. Yeah. I love how you said that. Coming out of the ashes, we'll get into that, right? But um, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in a good, you know, just a good Christian home in Fort Wayne, Indiana, good Midwest boy. You know, no, no, no reason to really uh, dive into alcohol or drugs or sex or gambling or anything like that. And, uh, but for me, it was really just kind of this allure of alcohol. Like it looked fun. You know, my family had parties at mm -hmm. the lake and just people looked like they were having fun. And I just remember just, uh, the first time I tasted beer, it was kind of like, that, that that's good. My inhibitions went down and I'm kind of like, I'm all in man. And that was kind of how it started was just first time I tasted it. It just, and it, I, I really say like alcohol had me at when I opened the first beer, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, see, that's odd because most people, their first experience is horrific. Uh, and uh, I didn't like mine. Um, I, you know, didn't enjoy it at all. I just continued doing it because that's what our friends did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for me, it was at a, it was at a youth event and I was 14 and a guy brought a six pack of beer and it was two girls, 14. Yeah. Two girls, a six pack of beer and went through the bushes. And, but I just went, I mean, I literally just went ka -ch, ka -ch, ka -ch, and opened them and just chugged the three beers. And then not really know what was going on after that. Right. But when I got in the car, my mom picked me up. She looked at me and said, honey, what's wrong with your eyes? They're so red. And I thought quickly, how many did you, how many did you have three? At 14, it was... You had three beers. Three beers, yeah. Jeez. <laughs> and Holy cow, at 14. But the great excuse was, Man. oh, mom, my allergies and my contacts are bugging me. And and that was it. Mm. It was just, I lied about it. You learned lying and deception for substance use disorders right out of the bat oh, yeah. at 14. And it, and it worked. And uh, that's kind of what I did for the next 15 years. Oh, my contacts are bugging me. Not really, but, you know, it was, uh, it was just, a, it, it just had me there. And it was kind of one of those things where, Almost every social activity I did with friends after that somehow involved alcohol. Drugs didn't come until college, yeah. but it was just 
alcohol was just there and it's just what people did. And so I just fell into it and got in trouble, got out of trouble, just a great manipulator. You know, I look at my, my days about the same. I was in eighth grade and we stole an Olympia out of my dad's refrigerator in the garage. Like five of us went out to the woods and we had like two beers and we passed them around. So you had three by yourself. We had five people with two beers and we all acted like we were drunk. We, we knew what being drunk was supposed to be like, cause we'd seen adults, but we'd never been drunk. And so that was my first experience with alcohol, uh, that I can, that I can remember. Uh, but I didn't have any alcoholism in my family. I've never seen my parents drunk. Um, my mom never, I've never seen my mom drink alcohol. Uh, I, my dad drinks, you know, uh, he's 90 now, so he doesn't anymore. But back in the day, he would drink, you know, beer or two a night, but I never saw him drunk. So I didn't grow up in an alcoholic, stereotypical family. I grew up in the Leave It the Beaver family. Mm. And I really did. I mean, we had no traumatic events as ch children. So my, my journey in alcoholism, I'm setting this context here because I want to hear about yours in a minute, but my journey in alcoholism was more of an exploration. I was just a bored kid in the middle of Iowa in high school, an athlete, decent grades, had a girlfriend. I was just bored. I was literally bored out of my mind. And so alcohol was that way for me to, to me to explore. Now, a lot of kids though, they're escaping. So I was going to talk a little bit about the dynamic between the assumption that all kids that drink are escaping childhood trauma versus the reality is a lot of kids just, they're just bored. They just want to explore, you know, and that was my case. So was yours more of a exploration or a, were you trying to escape something? No, mine was definitely more of an exploration. I didn't have a whole lot of traumatic things or anything that really happened in my right. life. It was just kind of like, Hey, here it is. And, and it was just, you know, again, I never really saw the repercussions of it, like in adults, so my parents weren't alcoholics. I mean, I have alcoholics on both sides of my family, but I never saw the impact of alcohol on family members, although it was happening. I just never saw it. And so mm -hmm. for me, but I mean, I mean, I had a couple of MIPs, but you know, I always got out of it. So it was kind of no, no direct like, issues with it, if you will. Um, and then college mm -hmm. came and I was, you know, woohoo. <laughs> I'm kind of free and out of the house and parents aren't here. So I swore I would never do drugs, Jeff. I'm like, I'm never doing drugs, never doing it. And then I started smoking pot. I liked it. Hmm. Did mushrooms. I liked it. Did some acid. I liked it. So anything I tried, I liked it. And I just right. knew that if I tried cocaine or I'd say any of the harder stuff that I would love it. So I stayed away from motorcycles, cocaine, and like, anything else that I felt like I would really enjoy that would cause me trouble in my life. So you knew you had, as do, do I, an addictive personality. Now I have attention deficit. I know you do. I don't know you at all, but I'm diagnosing you right now. You have attention deficit. Um, again, and that's a whole different subset of my journey here is that started my son's decline when he was given Adderall for attention deficit. So, but the reason I bring that up is, you know, when you started exploring and you realize though, that if you went to harder substances, I did the same thing. When, when Len Bias died, I was in high school and you remember Len Bias uh, was drafted uh, by the Celtics. I'm going to say uh, basketball I, player. I don't remember that, but go ahead. 
Okay. He was, he was anointed literally the next, like Michael Jordan before Michael Jordan was, was really big because Len Bias died, I think in 82 or 83 or 84 range. And he was the number one draft pick in the NBA draft out of university of Maryland. And the rumor is that on his, on the draft night or close to it, um, some friends gave him cocaine or whatever they gave him. And he had never tried his stuff before. And he died. And Len Bias was like the epitome of, of health. I mean, he was just, you know, you'll have to look him up and I'm sure people watching this know the story, but that to me as, as a young man was like, wow, if Len Bias can die by cocaine or whatever he took heroin and I'm this, I'm this small guy in Iowa, you know, shit, this stuff will kill me. You know, half of that stuff would kill me. So I, same reason, Rob, I didn't do the hard, I never did drugs in my life because I was afraid I would like them or I would die like Len Bias. Yeah. It's good to have those unfortunate things that you see, right. To deter it. And that's why I'm all about recovery stories. Like you are just sharing stories. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. trying to figure out ways to reach people that says, Oh, I can connect with that story. And that's why I do podcasting right. too. And I'm doing this huge swim for recovery campaign this month of just sharing stories. I saw that. And and just because, I mean, swimming was a big part of my mental health recovery because in high school, I mean, I made, the, I made the state, I made the state meet, right, in high school as an alternate, but I was really good. And like Mark beat me out by barely like a point zero zero zero, you know, whatever, but he beat me. But going to state was really cool. And I'm like, I want to go further. And, but the problem was in high school, you know, we were getting drunk at lunch, going to Hunan's and drinking these big big, big punch bowls of just whatever. And just in Fort Worth, Texas. Right. And, but I would go back to school and my swim coach was my, I was a teacher assistant for my swim coach. It's like, ah, just go ahead and take the afternoon off. I'll see you at practice. And I'm like, okay. So I had to make the decision to quit drinking or quit swimming. And I was like, did the logical thing. I let alcohol beat potential again and let that mm-hmm. dream kind of go and just kept drinking again. And that's, that's like the story of my life. It's kind of, I have a chance to become a doctor in college, but I really like to drink. So I'm just going to keep drinking and not work hard to get into medical school. And so a lot of those things, alcohol. So that's what you wanted to be. You wanted to be a doctor. Oh yeah. My grandfather, Bapa was like, he delivered half of Fort Wayne, Indiana. And I always wanted to be like Bapa. He was just an amazing guy. Wow. And, but I was just too much of a drunk and a partier to, I didn't have vision in my life or, mentors in my life that I paid attention. I had mentors. I just didn't pay, pay attention to them, but yeah, it was just, it, it was just alcohol beat potential every single time in my life. And it, the repercussions of that, you know, still play a lot part of my life at 50 years old. So. So how long along the journey did you realize you had a problem? What stage I we're, we're really advocating identifying stages in adolescence through what's called prehabituation which we think is kind of a groundbreaking uh, um, research out there. And I've got this individual that uh, I should have you meet someday. He's the brains behind all this. And what stage, I mean, did you realize in high school you had a problem? Were you just in denial or did you actually realize that in college you had a problem? Or did you realize, you know, in your 40s, you know, when did you realize you had a problem? Uh, Middle school. In middle school, you realized you had a problem. I mean, we we were drinking in middle school. I'm, you must have been drinking. You must, you must have been drinking quite well, a bit then. I knew I liked it a lot, and that wasn't supposed to be right. So I remember even it, that was the problem. Even <laughs> at one of the eighth grade dances, uh, I won't mention her name, but one of the girls was 
was drinking upstairs and she fell down the stairs like into the gym and it was yeah. like funny like we all laughed she laughed and i'm like man this isn't right but yeah high school completely evident so you know 14 15 i knew i had a problem and i'm out i i, I remember at the lake drinking i was probably like 14 or 15 and um we used to so my grandma thought she was really smart having a lock on the liquor it was like a liquor like a it went the length of a bedroom upstairs and that's where she kept her liquor. Mm -hmm. So my brother and I started taking the hinges off the back of the liquor thing and pulling it forward. And then we'd put, so we never had to undo the lock. Right. And I remember sitting mm -hmm. in my bed and I said to my brother, I'm like, man, the bed's spinning. He goes, put your foot on the floor. And then the whole house was spinning, right? <laughs> the bed stayed still. And I, so I, I had a problem in the beginning and it just continued for 15 years and caused lots of, lots of hell and suicide ideation and self-loathing. And just, I became someone I did not enjoy becoming, especially growing up a Christian. Like I knew that my behavior was not what I should be doing nor wanted to be doing. It's just what we did. Yeah. Your, uh, your quest to get to heaven was probably a little bit uh, blocked by some of your actions. I mean, did that, did that kind of hover over you that you, you felt like, you know, I, I better, I better start changing my habits or, or this is going to end badly in the afterlife. No, never thought of that. What I believed was Jeff, hmm. that I believe there was the savior part, right? I believed I was going to heaven. That you'd be, you'd be forgiven for everything you did yeah. wrong here. I believed that. Right. So you could, you could then pretty much do what you wanted here. And I used the excuse. But what I didn't get right. and understand really until I went to prison and recovery was that there's this lordship part. Like I, I want to become these things. Like I already am. Like God says, we're all these things, right? We're a saint, we're his child, we're his workmanship, we're part of the vine and all the great things we already are. But knowing that I never wanted to strive for that, if that makes sense. It was just the light, but yeah. And I never did foxhole prayers either, Jeff. I never said, you know, God, get me out of this. And I'll never do it again because I knew I was going to do it again. And so yeah. I, I believe God was keeping me alive for a bigger purpose, which because is evident when I would get arrested, I'd get out the next day. Or if I totaled my car, like before senior year of college and survived a car, my car went end over end six times, according to the police and never didn't get a DUI. Nothing happened. Just walked away. Hmm. Just that was my life jumping out of boats at 50, 60 miles an hour. And just for the fun of it and, just I, I I had convinced myself in some ways that I was like invincible and I was just a complete idiot. <laughs> and it was so. What happened? What was your epiphany moment? Oh yeah. So um, it was around year two thousand. Well, before was, you get that, let's let's go back to prison because I'm guessing you had your epiphany moment probably after prison. So prison was in recovery. So I got sober in two thousand one, but I went to prison in two thousand twelve. Okay. Okay, we'll come back to that. Let's talk about, let's stay in chronological order so I my simple brain doesn't get lost here. Let's go back to before prison. Let's go back to a little bit in that period of your life and talk about what happened then. Yeah, and it, it's oddly enough, it's a time, um, okay, so we're talking about my recovery point, right? Not prison right now, right? So, <laughs> Right, right. You and I, we got to hang out more. We'll be like, hey, Rob, get back to point A. You're at Z right now. Um, so- or I tell you to remember where we're at so I can continue talking. Yeah. Put a pin right there in your map above your head. Um, 
That's right. So, but you know, I, I really started hating who I was becoming because I did not like who I saw in the mirror, but externally you couldn't really tell I was struggling as much as I was because I was your fun, happy go lucky guy. But you know, I'm $67,000 in credit card debt. I'm dealing with tons of suicide ideation. Like I would literally be driving down the highway in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and I would see my car veer off the highway, crash into a median, my car would explode, and I'd see myself dead on the side of the road. And that was happening more. Like every day. It was happening more and more frequently. And and that was scaring the heck out of me. I was like, man, this isn't good. I don't know. But I couldn't talk to anybody because if I told you as one of my friends, you would send me to like Centennial Peaks or some psych how, hospital. How old were you at this I was 29 years old. Okay. 29, uh, recently divorced from just an alcoholic marriage that should have never happened and just Uh going, just going for it. And um, so I was doing a lot of suicide ideation, hated who I was. I was really crying out for God. Like, I really want to change God. Please help me. Like crying out for help, right? And the Bible says God hears our cries for help and he answers them in his timing, right? And so... One night I'm hanging out in a bar in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and it's girls, it's music, it's, you know, we're highly intoxicated and it's just loud and we're partying. And all of a sudden the whole bar got dead silent and I audibly hear the words, you're done. And then the bar got really loud again. And in that moment, I felt like something shifted inside of me, but I didn't know what, I did not know what that moment meant yet. And I said to my friend, Sean, I'm like, dude, I got to go home. I think I'm finally done drinking. He laughs, says, I'll see you at the bar tomorrow night. He said for the night. Yeah. Yeah. He said, you're done drinking for tonight, yeah. right? He's like, <laughs> Not forever. Oh yeah. He's like, I'll see you at the bar tomorrow night. Cause that's just what we did. I mean, my lifestyle was right. drinking. I was your designated drunk driver. We drank and drove eight nights yeah. a week and partied and I'd shut, I'd close yeah. the bars down. Then I would drive two and a half hours to a casino and have no clue. I even went to the casino. Just blackouts, yeah, right? Man, been so there, been there. It's scary yep. stuff because you don't, you don't know what ever happened. And um, I'll tell you a different story about that later. But um, so I drive home this evening after hearing you're done, and I thought I was done drinking. I get home and walk up twelve flights of stairs or twelve stairs to my one bedroom apartment. Next thing I knew, I had three hundred fifty pounds on my barbell, uh, laid down on my workout bench in complete desperation and disconnectedness, I'd say from reality, if you will, and laid down on my workout bench and I picked up that barbell and I just dropped it across my chest. Like you dropped it from up here yeah. that high I, up here. And I was, I, Holy I, cow. I, it's like I unhinged my elbows and just dropped it. And what I believe happened oh, in that man. moment was that time stopped <clears throat> God looked at my dog, Jake, and said, go save your dad's life. Jake came over and started nudging my knee with his head. Now, meanwhile, the bar is right here, right? Like above my chest. Yeah. Elbows are unhinged. But it's almost like in a millisecond of time, all this happened. And my dog starts nudging my knee with his head, kind of with that puppy dog head tilt. Like, what are you doing, dad? My first Mm -hmm. thought was, who's going to feed you tomorrow? Holy crap, what am I doing? What about my mom and my dad and my brother? And I just started thinking about like these good things. I'm like, I don't want to die. And I just right. feel like God was just kind of standing there over me like a like a father. Kind of like, are you done yet? Okay. Put the barbell back on the rack and just slept in peace for the first time in my entire life. From a guy that could drink like up to two bottles of scotch a day. 
to be completely delivered from my addiction the next morning without having detox or withdrawal, no cravings. I haven't had a craving in 21 mm-hmm. years, Jeff, ever since that night. And God just... So you quit cold turkey. Well, God, God removed it from me, which helped me quit. Because <clears throat> I just went I just went to like my first AA meeting and found a bunch of people that were happy and living life. And I'm like, I want this. I'm in. And just became Mr. Recovery and never took a drop of... Never, never dr- took another drug or anything ever since then. So how old were you when you quit? Uh, 29 years old. You quit at 29. Yeah. Okay. So how many years you've been sober? Then? 21. So I'm 50 right now. I know I don't look it, but I'm 50 right now. <laughs> I wasn't trying to deceptively <laughs> do the math there. I was just thinking, you know, I, I look at, I look at, you look good for your age, by the way. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I'm 56. So, <laughs> um, but I look back, you know, again, as you're telling your story, like we all do, I'm relating in my mind, my story, I'm playing my narrative and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I waited till 52 to quit and it took, you know, the death of a child and watching my wife slowly deteriorate to the point where she died as well. But I quit, believe it or not, I quit to help her, um, on December 24, 2017, my vision was a mirror. My vision was what was staring back at me in the mirror. Mm. And that was the moment I just said, dude, enough's enough. You're 52. You've been doing this for too long. You've dodged a lot of bullets. You've lost your child. That was an alcoholic too. Seth had drinking issues and, and now you're losing your wife. You know, what else do you want to lose? Mm. And so the man in the mirror just said, it's time. And so I quit. And like you, it's been the easiest thing I've ever done. I've had no cravings. I still have a dog named Camus. Um, and my cat was named Opus. Um, and um, I don't even call myself sober because that implies I'm in a fight, like I'm in a struggle. Yeah, oh, man. And I'm not. I, you know, the, 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 for me, Rob, and, and I'm trying to really promote this concept because so many people struggle in recovery, so many people struggle with addiction. I'm trying to look at this in the context of say Occam's razor. Sometimes the simplest answer is this is the solution. And I think we over complicate all this. And I'm talking, when I say this, I say mental health in general. I think we over complicate the, the person in our head. We think there's a person in our head and the games we play, the stories we tell ourselves and the obligations we think we have to tie, we have to, you know, you're not obligated to even believe the story of your past. You can rewrite your story of your past. You don't, you don't have to live in the past. And if you do, you can go back and, and, and fabricate and, and reinvent yourself. And so for me, for sobriety, it just came down to, okay, I don't drink today. So Rob today on nine 13 at 11 23 AM central time, I'm choosing, well, I'm drinking coffee, but I'm choosing not to drink alcohol. Now, tomorrow, I'm not going to worry about tomorrow. Uh, how about, how about I get there first? I could die today. I could have a heart attack today. And yesterday is over and I don't keep score. I don't know how many days I've been, I haven't drank. I just know I quit on what day I quit. And I'm just trying to get it down to, you know what? Every day I wake up, I'm going to have a choice to make. I can choose to drink. I can choose not to drink. I can choose to get drunk. I can choose to have a uh, beer. I, I have all these choices to make. And so I little bit sometimes buck heads with people that are so convinced that it, that the disease model 
is the only way you can live your life is polarized by some something inside of you or some, you know, I think we, we look at, and I was listening to Dr. Gabor Mate on, on the Rich Roll podcast, and he was talking about addiction. He goes, we look at addiction as this thing sitting over there in the corner, like waiting to jump on our back, like a, like a spider, you know, or we look at, um, you know, depression as this thing over there, or we look at the reality is it's already in us. It's a process of being human. And if we can learn to stop thinking of these things as separate from us, that they are actually part of us. So we're all addicts. We're all depressed. We all are. And some of us have found a way to manifest it in a negative way where we sit around all day and we think about all the bad things in our life or we drink. Yeah. And then some of us have found a way to, to uh, manipulate it uh, into something productive and beneficial. And so I think... Um, you and I are very common in, in, in that context. I think we've kind of looked at this less as a disease and more of a choice. Now I know that it's both. I, I get that. Uh, I don't argue nature or nurture anymore. It's nature and nurture. I get that. Yeah. But what percentage is the key? Is it 90% choice, 10% nature or, or, or your disease? I, I don't know. I mean, but I think, you know, this Rob, we can talk ourselves in and out of anything. And if I want to tell myself I'm held prisoner or captive by some invisible force that's making me drink alcohol, then I'll believe it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're exactly right. And, and I, uh, I appreciate what you said because coming from the same mentality, like I don't refer to myself as an alcoholic anymore or an addict because mm. I've been, I don't need I've been freed from that. And, and that's just, that's right. just me. That's my personal choice because as one of my friends said, which I'm adopting and I've, you know, I've heard other places, it's like I'm recovering like towards something, not from something. So there's a lot of, sh there's a lot of shame and guilt in current, um, I guess, uh, what do you want to call it? Programming or stuff like that, where it's, you know, I, the fear is this, well, I can't go, yeah. go anywhere because if I do, or if I don't do this, I'm going to drink. I'm like, no, no, yeah. you're freed from that. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm right. I'm right there with you. And it, and it gets a lot of flack from people too. It's like, well, well, you need to, yeah. you need to refer yourself as an alcoholic or addict. I'm like, why? Cause it, for me, Jesus freed me from that. Now, what I will say, and people ask me this question is go, which they might say to you, Jeff is, well, if you've been freed from it, the addiction part, can't you just have a beer? I'm like, I don't want to find I out. Can. I don't want to find out. Like I don't miss it. No, but here's the thing, but here's the thing. I, I probably can. And you know what? Someday maybe I will. I'm not telling anybody I'll never drink again. Yeah. I know for Jeff Johnson on, on, on the September 13th at 11, 26 AM, that drinking isn't for me. What I do tomorrow, what you do tomorrow, I, I, I'm not really worried about that. And, and you know what? If I did ever have a drink again, I swear to you, I'd be perfectly okay with it. I wouldn't torture myself. I wouldn't go on social media on some crying post that I broke my streak of 747 days and 20. I mean, that's the narrative that I think we're married to that we have to participate in. I'm telling people, you don't have yeah. to, you can just choose not to drink and then move on with your day. Yeah. yeah. You know, I go to bars with my friends. I buy them drinks. I have a bottle of Cabernet in my cabinet upstairs to remind me, I open it up and look at it and I see it there. It's like, it's like an old friend that I don't want to start a relationship with anymore. You know, it's like somebody I knew in high school that I, that I respect and I like, but I just don't want to deal with anymore. It's like, you know, leave me alone. Um, so yeah, I think, I think sharing our stories, Rob, we can give people out there more arrows in their quiver. We can give them another tool in their toolbox. If AA works for you. Great. If, if God is your thing. Great. If writing a book is your thing. Great. 
If, you know, exercise is your thing, great. But we shouldn't just have one thing. We should have multiple tools to help us with all these issues, right? Yeah. And, and that's and that's actually one you you're joking about the book thing, but it was, you know, that's why I wrote this recent book, the addiction intervention book, because it's about how do people break free from the bondage of addiction and what are strategies to do that? Right. And so there's a lot of different ways to find freedom. And, and one of the big things that got me on this kick recently was that I was at a recovery meeting and a person's had 30 plus years of sobriety, whatever, 30 plus years of their last drink, however you want to phrase it. And just said, man, if I don't go to a drink uh, meeting tomorrow, I'm going to, I'm going to drink. And, and he'd been saying that for 30 years, every day. Went to a meeting almost every day of his life for 30 years, which is cool. Like that's his program. But in his mind, he's keeping himself trapped that if I don't do this, I will drink. And for me, I look at that as there's no freedom in that. Like, and it's, it's day to day and all the, Oh no, it's the opposite. You're a prisoner. Yeah, You're a prisoner to something else. And I, what I want people to see and experience is freedom in their life where you can go do anything you want to. You don't have to be afraid. People come to my house all the time for parties. And I had a, like my 50th birthday last year and had all these different pockets of people from my life that never met each other. It was really kind of cool. And they're like, how long have you known Rob? 15 years, 10 years. How have we never met before? You know, but everyone, people right. brought beer and they say, you care if I bring something to drink? I'm like, I don't care. I don't drink. My wife enjoys a bottle of beer or a glass of wine every now and then. I don't yeah. condemn her for it, but that's the journey I've been on. But what I will say is that, as you know, this isn't about the drink. This is about the underlying stuff that drove us to drink, right? The mental health piece is huge in our recovery because like getting our minds right and our hearts aligned and everything is so key and important. And as we were talking about earlier, you know, I I went to prison 11 years without substances because I had a mental breakdown and I didn't understand mental health at that point at all until this happened in my life. And I can look back and be like, holy crap, how did I get here? And I can look back and say, oh, I stopped doing these things that were good in my life because I got busy. I got a wife, yeah. had two kids, owned a business. I didn't have time to go to meetings. I didn't have time to go to Bible studies or church. Oh, by the way, you suck again. Suicide ideation kicks up. You don't talk about, I didn't talk about my mental struggles with friends. Right. And I just crumbled and fell apart without any substances whatsoever with, but I did have a bad gambling addiction, which I didn't know how that I did too. Oh, did you? I did too. Yeah. I was a financial planner for 32 years. I built an investment company up here with, at one point we had $700 million under management. I had nine advisors and seven full-time staff, but underlying my alcoholism I had a 20 year gambling addiction as well. Yeah. Um, but it never got into any problems where uh, it caused any, anything other than stress in my life. That's all it did. Um, but yeah, I did too. I had gambling and alcohol. That's only really two major addictions that I've had. Uh, and you know what? I still gamble. Um, I gamble. Uh, I go down to the casino here in Iowa city about once a week. I make my bets on Thursday. It's all money that I don't care if I win or lose. It's just, I get, I'm bored a little bit. I like entertainment. So I'm not abstinence to any of these things. I am drinking. I'm abstinence to drinking. I don't drink. Um, but gambling, I figured out a way that, um, I went to Vegas with a friend over the football playoffs for the very first time in 20 years. Cause I, I banned myself from going to casinos and had the best time I've ever had in my life. Actually won money. First time I ever won money. I didn't drink, 
we sat and drank uh, Heineken zeros for, you know, day hours on hours at the, at the, at the uh, Caesars palace. And I got to thinking, you know, that's what you talked about. I, I wasn't fearful of gambling. I knew that my gambling was a problem because of my other problem drinking. Cause I would, I would always go to the casinos drunk always. Yeah. Yeah. See, I, I, and then I didn't want to win. I didn't want to win a hundred bucks. I wanted to win all the money in the casino or zero. <laughs> see, I, <laughs> Which doesn't happen very. <laughs> yeah. I was a good, so wasn't a good, plan. I was a good sober gambler. Like I, I, I remember several times I turned a hundred dollars into like six grand and $10,000, like a couple of instances, but then I'd get drunk and I'd bet big and stupid all gone. And just rent limos yeah. and go buy people drinks and just like, Blow it. I remember yeah. one time in Vegas, this was awful. It was awful, but, but it's funny looking back on it now, but I took a hundred dollars, turned it yeah. in. Like by the end of the night, it was up to like $10,000 and, um, people were watching it. And then you get like kudos. Right. And it's like, Oh, way to go. And I remember on a work trip saying to my buddy, Dennis, I go, man, I need to put this in a safe. So the casinos have like little safes. Right. And I said, I need to put all the money in there, you know, and the chips or whatever we had. And it was like, and I told the person, tell him the code, but don't tell me. Yeah. And I was like, dude, yeah. don't tell me the code all night. And I literally almost beat it out of him. And he told me the code. Yeah. Blew all the money. We went through the same thing. Blew all the money. Yep. It was awful. And, and the, here's, here's the scary thing about self-loathing and addictions. You never know when it's going to turn. Like, I didn't plan on trying to drop a barbell across my chest. I never thought about it ever. Yeah. It just happened. So right. this evening, right. I'm literally... I lost all the money. I'm self-loathed. I hate who I am. I'm just like this. I'm like, yeah, I'm like yep. devastated. Right. And I'm, yep. I'm standing in my hotel room and I grab the little office chair at the desk and I just grab it and I just run as fast as I can to the window and try to jump out the window with the chair going forward. And I was just going to launch oh, myself wow. out the window. And the next thing I know the chair, like had the right angle and it like, I don't know if it rolled up the window or whatever, but it hits the ceiling, falls back, hits me on the head, and I'm laying in my uh -huh. I'm laying in my my hotel room laughing hysterically because I'm like, you idiot. You literally almost launched yourself out of a window. Yeah. Over a hundred really yeah. it was over a hundred dollars. Right? right. But but I, I never that's what you started. And I never planned on killing myself. It was just when you live an impulsive, reactive life, and gambling is not just about placing the bet. I mean, it's moving people around in your life to get what you want. It's moving money around to yeah. get what you want. It's not about like people just think gambling is casinos and scratch tickets. And I'm like, man, it's about this is when I stopped gambling. So, you know, I went to prison, got out of prison, got my life back on track, was still buying tickets and all that stuff. But I was I got frustrated with my kids one night. Cause I had to take the movie back to Redbox Cause I was going to pay another dollar 69 for the movie rental. Right. And I'm right. just, I'm going through this and I'm going through celebrate recovery, trying to break free from this because there weren't enough GA meetings and that just didn't work for me. And, and I'm sitting there and I get, and I, and I got frustrated with my kids and I, and all I wanted to do was go to the gas station next to the red box to buy some scratch tickets. It had nothing to do with losing a dollar sixty nine for another overnight rental on Netflix, and I'm like, Absolutely. man, yeah, this is really impacting my life. And so, you know, right. December first or December thirty first, uh, nineteen two thousand eighteen, 
was when I committed, like never go to casinos or doing that kind of stuff. I have bought scratch tickets here and there throughout that. But the, the real crux was going to casinos and losing a bunch of money or winning money. That really drove my chaos. But man, gambling sucks. That was harder for me to break free from than substances because it's a process addiction. So it's a different, I don't have to put a drink or a drug into my body to get a dopamine hit from a bet. So it's, I had a major chemical imbalance and probably still do um, for dopamine and stuff in my body. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, my moment when I realized I was done at the level of gambling, like I said, I took a probably almost two decades from like, you know, 30 to 50 pretty much off. Um, was when some friend of mine who were gambling together with, you know, this is back. We used bookies and paid him in the back alleys. You know, there wasn't online sports betting, which another thing is I would never have that on my phone. I'd be dead. Um, my friends all have it. And I'm like, dude, you know, I'd rather go to the casino, make myself bet, come back, wait a week, go down, make myself bet. All my friends are making halftime bets and all. And I said, that's just, that's a recipe for disaster. But my moment was a friend of mine said, even when you win, you lose totally. And that stuck with me. That stuck with me. And I'm like, even if I win this parlay, I'm going to lose it all eventually. And for some reason I knew that, but it was never framed and it wasn't presented at the right moment. I probably had a, a void open. that was accepting advice because I was probably really down. And my friend said, Hey Jeff, even when you win, you lose. And that, that, I don't know. We, sometimes you get these weird little sayings that people say, or in your case, you had something actually said to you um, that really can be impactful and can change your life, you know? Yeah, very much. And I almost feel like I enjoyed losing more than winning because there's the struggle of getting back. Well, you're a competitor. Yeah. You're a competitor. And yeah. It was almost like I, had I agree. I mean, that's why. Why do you think that the number one, pro the number one group of people that have problem gambling problems are adolescent males, mm. you know, uh, 18 to 25 probably is the where most of the betting come from and they're the ones that don't have the money but they're very competitive they're you know they're alpha males they're you know they're they're ex-athletes a lot of them played sports and now they don't know what to yeah. do and then they watch people like charles barkley and phil mickelson glorify it on the national stage they talk about their gambling all the time and kids just just like we see alcohol on super bowl commercials with your family and all your kids around watching you know, it's like we wonder why we have a generation of adolescents so screwed up when not just adults, you know, um, are hypocritical, but then we everything we watch is based on on what these kids are doing. I mean, and then we talk about drugs. I saw a statistic the other day, um, Rob, that United States represents like four percent of the world's population, but we we uh, take like seventy percent of the world's prescription meds. And then we account for 90% of the advertising on TV in the world for prescriptions. Mm. It's insane. It's insane. That's you know, and something, something has to give yeah. or we're going to lose more people. We're losing 800 a day from suicide, alcohol, and drugs, 800 a day. And when Seth died in 2016, Rob, there was 46,000 Americans overdosed that year. There was 110,000 last year. So let me ask you this question. So everyone talks about raising awareness, raising awareness. That's, that's what advocacy is all about. And I, I'm pushing back a little bit. I think raising awareness, that ship has sailed. I think, I think we need to bring attention to 
these issues mm-hmm. in a different psychological angle. Because raising attention, if you look statistically, we talk more about suicide. It numbers are up. We talk more about fentanyl, more overdoses. We talk more about every issue we have as humans and they're all worse. So how do we fix this problem that we're in? What's, and I want to have, I want to have you talk about your programs that you have, your website, your book, your coaching. So maybe the next 15, 20 minutes of the podcast, let's talk a little bit about what you do to people and then how you think we can fix these problems we have in our country. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate the attention too. That's a great, uh, shift in language, which I'm going to adopt when we're finished with this. I don't bring awareness. Any, I don't, I don't raise awareness yeah, yeah. anymore. People say, well, congratulations, Jeff. No, I'm bringing yeah. attention. To well, you. I mean, I'm doing this swim for recovery campaign, swim for recovery awareness campaign, bringing awareness to recovery from addiction. And I'm like, I'm like, so you got a little, yeah, more. it's like, I'm, I might even go change the language on my marketing, like kind of the stuff with that. Cause again, my whole purpose of do my whole purpose of writing the book I recently wrote called the addiction intervention book, which there's a copy of it right there. I should, uh, I should send you one. And, uh, and you will, because I'll send you a copy of my book. <laughs> I, I like to, I like to put it on my stack cause I want to get to these books. Do you have an audio book with it? Not yet. That's coming. So, so okay. one of the things that about that reason is cause I, so I have, I have 10 other experts in the book, right? All about their processes of addiction interventions and what they do to help people, their stories, their passions, mm-hmm. all that stuff. So part of it as I'm going to reach out to them and say, Hey, I do want to do this audibly because I love podcasting and all that stuff. And I want to see if they're, if they want to record, like read their own story in the book themselves and kind mm-hmm. of have a absolutely multiple language, you know, kind of like, Hey, here, Judith, read her story. Right. And, um, right. and so I wrote this just to educate people on how to really help families see that there are multiple ways you can help a loved one and the family system break free from the cycles of addiction. Right. And, um, and not just break free, but gain awareness. Oh, I'm sorry. Bring attention to ways that they can continue that, uh, continue that in a healthy way. And so, so that, that was one reason I wrote this book. And the reason I did this swim for recovery, I was, I, I really try to pay attention to kind of the Holy spirit in my life and guidance. And cause I'm a really creative guy. And a lot of times my ideas and things that would be effective don't really they miss things. each other. Right? right. So I've learned over time right. to talk about even my coaching programs and the intervention process and all the stuff I do is to ask people questions and say, well, what did you like about this? What would you tweak and say, okay. So I've invested a lot of my own money into coaching programs for myself because as a coach, I have coaches and that's the only way I can be better. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's not all just coaching people with addiction struggles. It's coaching people on life transition struggles right? And mm-hmm. business strategies and all that. So I love, I, those are the things right. I love to do. And, um, but I did this swim for swim for recovery campaign to share people's recovery stories. So someone can identify, cause some people might hear my story and be like, good job, Rob. I, I didn't connect with you at all. Fine. But they might connect right. <laughs> with Terry's story or they might connect right. with one of the other 29 stories shared this month of, you know, the, during this month. And so, just like podcasting, I'll work with families on interventions and people that I interview. I said, Oh, I'm going to text you a link to this podcast show, not for my own benefit, right? Oh, here's Rob's show again. But for the people I interviewed stories, because I really feel you resonate with them. And maybe that will get like in my, in behind my mind, like maybe I'll get them over the hump to take action, right? <laughs> and 
right. it's hard to take action for some people when they have a loved one because they're afraid that if I do this and my loved one does that, I am responsible. Well, there's the enabling, there's the tough love. And I write about this in my book too, about the, the dynamic between being an enabler, which I was, and then tough love, which I was. Um, my son was in prison as well, and he got out and asked to come back into the house, and I wouldn't let him back in the house because I had my wife who was struggling with her drinking and my two boys. And um, I said, Seth, that ship has sailed. And um, the last thing I said to him in my garage when he turned around and left, I said, you need to quit drinking. And he was dead within a couple of months. Uh, and, you know, so then I begged the question, should I have let him back in the house, you know, but you can't play that game. Once you make those decisions, you move on. But let me ask you a question about adolescence. Cause that's my, that's where I want to spend most of my life and my time is again, what we talked about with prehab versus rehab, you know, rehab is a great, uh, uh, is, is an effective place. Um, I struggle with that word rehab, because if you're trying to rehab a piece of furniture, you're bringing it back to its original rest, rest. You're restoring it to its original thing. I don't think someone wants to go back to who they were before. Um, so I, the word, the word rehab itself, I don't like recovery. I do. Um, but with, with kids, I mean, what's your thoughts on intervening before the intervention? I think it's huge. And, and, and again, I'm, the the word awareness. Every time I say it now, I'm going to think attention too. But I'm just gonna, <laughs> I'm just going to say awareness at this. Point. I love yeah. it. I love yeah. it. It's a movement. Let you and I start yeah. this movement so we can get people yeah. to stop raising awareness because it's a dead yeah. horse. Well, yeah. I mean, when you bring attention to the fact that right, right. And, and I go back to my life. We lure them in that yeah. way. We lure them yeah. in that way. Like yeah. bringing attention to the fact that here are. Because, again, I can say the same thing to a kid that his parents have been saying for years, and they're going to hear me, but they're not going to hear his, their parents, right? 100%. So 100%. it's like, well, how do you – like when I walk into an intervention, how do you how do you know who I am? I go, well, let me tell you a little bit of my story, and I'll go – like a two-minute spiel, like, okay, maybe I'll listen to you a little bit. But it's bringing attention to of, – of even kind of family histories because you'll hear people say, well – Great grandfather was an alcoholic. Grandpa was an alcoholic. Dad's an alcoholic. I'm going to be an mm -hmm. alcoholic. And gosh darn it, my kids are going to be alcoholics. I'm like, stop. Like that's doesn't have to happen. You know, it's, you can break the cycle right. now. And that's what I'm 100%. doing with my kids is they're aware of my story. I brought attention to the stuff I've been through, attention to the things other family members have gone through, attention to the, not awareness, attention to the things that other people go through. So if I can bring, they open their eyes a little bit to say, wow, I, I don't want that. Okay, so what do we do now? Because honestly, Jeff, I'm 14 and 15. And I love drugs, but life's going to suck being sober. Well, you just went to free spiritual community here in Colorado, which do a lot of cool stuff. And there's so many things now that says, hey, if you love music and you want to go to a concert sober, you can do that. If you want to go to a pool hall and play pool with your buddies or drinking beer, you can do that. But if you're a kid, that's so far away to think, but everyone drinks. Right. So you know, young people in recovery, I don't know if you're familiar with them or you like them, but you know, that's a group of people. They're young people in recovery around the country or there's, yeah. there's sober houses in colleges. Now alpha 180. there's all these programs out there that says, Hey, 
these people are having fun without alcohol and booze. Let me bring attention to what they're doing right. and show you. So, uh, but again, when you put the boundaries down, like you did, Jeff, you put a healthy boundary down with your son, right? And he chose to yeah. do what he did. Right. I wasn't there when heroin yeah. went to his I arm mean, uh, or I would have stopped. And, him. and that's the hard yeah. thing, right? Be, but so many people feel just like what you said. What if I would have let him in the house? Well, he would have, he would have died sometime anyway. You're exactly right. I, I I've said that. And that's the reality of, of, uh, of regret. When we go back and try to replay scenarios, sometimes the outcome would have been the yeah. same. It, it real um, quick, real quick, you know, I don't even like, I don't yeah. like the word enabling, just throwing that out there. Because hmm. at the time, would you agree that you were doing the best you could with the tools that you had? 100%. Okay. So were 100%. you enabling him? In hindsight. In hindsight. But right. at the time, you yeah. are a parent surviving right. to save the life of right. your child and doing everything you can yep. so they don't die. So right. there's a guy, uh, Dr. Uh, Rob Weiss, and he talks about pro-dependency versus codependency. You are hmm. taking... You're taking action to save your loved one's right. life. Yes, you're buying them groceries, but you're buying them because your heart says, but if he doesn't eat, he's going to die. That's the dynamic. Yeah. And that's every parent. Every parent is listening to this podcast right now. Yeah. Rob is thinking to themselves, well, shit, I just gave my son a hundred bucks Friday. Uh, I know he blew it on drugs, but he's my son. You know, I had to give him a hundred bucks because he doesn't have you know any food to eat. Yet, then again, there's parents out there saying, yeah, I kicked my son out of the house or my, I'm picking on men, kick my daughter out of the house. She's an addict. She's got these problems. I got other family members here. So I just kicked her out of the house. Both of those could be right yeah. decisions. Yeah. But you got to have, a you know, plan. that's the problem. Cause you got to have a plan. You are right. You right. Right. Or you got to be accountable to what you say too. You can't threaten. And I, I, so many parents, and that's one thing I'll pat myself on the back is I never threatened Seth. I, I told him what I would do. And, you know, I gave him a second chance, maybe in a third chance, but then, but then we did it. And, um, it was tough. Uh, again, I write about that in the book. A lot of the times that we had issues and uh, parents can think maybe it was, I was too hard or not. And, but, um, so going back to the kids thing again, you're exactly right. I think it's Robert Cialdini has, uh, written about social proof and that we as humans are more likely to change behavior if we are inspired from somebody in our peer group. So that's what testimonials are all about in businesses. That's why we have a forward in a book written by other people. Um, so it's called social proof and you're exactly right. So what we're doing, and I'll, I'll talk to you about this sometime off the air, but we're designing uh, an online platform for adolescents that's gonna be social proof driven. Uh, it's gonna be uh, designed by adults with all the knowledge, all the data behind the scenes but it's going to be driven by adolescents too. So it's peer to peer, but it's not adult, adult peer to peer. It's kid to kid. And we think that that's like a backdoor way to come around this mental health issue with kids, because you're right, Rob, if you come up with a, a kid's book on mental health and you sit down at a school and you hand them out free, how many of those kids are going to read that book? Or if you develop an app for kids and it's presented to parents, Hey, this, this will save your kid. And then the kid, the parents sit down at dinner table saying, well, hey, little Johnny, I got this mental health app. It's going to, it's not going to work. So it's like, we have to, as parents be creative into coming in the side doors to these kids because somebody has to draw a line in the sand, Rob. We are losing too many, the next generation of doctors, the next generation of 
coaches, the next generation of teachers, the next generation of firemen, firewomen. Um, we're losing him at 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. And if not by death, we're losing him to addiction. That'll lead to yeah. death. Um, and we're taking generations of productive humans out of not just the American society, but out of the global society, things that we need help for, for global warming and, uh, fighting the next pandemic. And we need, we need smart people, uh, to help us through these things, but they're dying at 13, 14, 15 years old. And it really pisses me off. And that's why I do what I do. Yeah. Amen to that. I mean, and there's, there's 52 year old boys living in parents' houses right now that are like, you know, just doing the same thing they were doing when they were 14, 15. Right. And parents are still worried about right. that. I mean, I have clients that have their kids still living upstairs and they won't take action to get them out of the house and they're dying. But you know, a 52 year old person in that situation, if they made some changes today, they could have 30 fricking productive years, not just to society, but for their yeah. legacy and for their quality of life for that, you know, whether you believe in the afterlife or not, either way, you ought to try to make sure you have the best day you possibly yeah. can. I, mean, I, I write about this in my book because um, I tend to be on the agnostic side, but it's like, okay, let's say, let's say you're a, a Christian or Catholic and you believe in the afterlife, you believe in God. Well, then the reward to go to heaven, you know, is obviously how you are on this earth. So I think if you're a religious person, then certainly you want to be a good person, right? Because that increases your chances to live forever. But if you're, let's say, an agnostic or an atheist, which a lot of people in recovery are, a lot of people have given up on God and, and, and they've said, well, you know, he didn't help me when I was down. I'm not going to believe in him. Well, let's say you're agnostic. Well, an agnostic person or an atheist, they don't believe necessarily in the afterlife, like in the context of heaven and hell, they believe maybe in reincarnation, you know, in, in rebirth, things like that. Well, let's say I'm agnostic or I'm an atheist. Well, th if this is the only chance I'm ever going to have to be a human being, if this is the only chance I'm going to have to be alive because I'm going to the same place when I died where I was before I was born. I really believe I'm going nowhere. Well, then every day I have to make heaven on earth. Every day is my last day. So I argue in my book, it doesn't really matter what your belief structure is, because I could argue both cases that you should be a good human being at the end of the day. Mm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Do I mean, cause universally we all know what's right and wrong, you know, in our own journey right. and stuff like that too. But addiction clouds that mental health struggles cloud that like, there's so many things that kind of get in the way, but I, what I, I say it boils down to, and a lot of the stuff I talk about when I share about restoring hope, identity, and purpose is, there's a hole right. in our life and we're trying to fill it with something. And if we don't define what that thing is, it's going to fill our hole. Something else is going to do it right. The, the way always does the always way other does. people feel yeah. about us, our bank accounts, our divorce or yeah. marriage, like all these things. And they can change so, so quickly and dramatically that mm -hmm. if all this stuff goes away, who are you? That's the question I ask a lot of my clients mm -hmm. that, Okay. That's a great, that's a great way to frame yeah. that. I remember it was one specific and I'll just tell this last thing is that. Wow. That's really powerful. That, I like, I really like yeah. that. If you strip away everything you have and you're standing there naked in the mirror, who yeah. are you? Yeah. It was a client of mine that had a DUI and she was worried she was going to lose her practice and all this hmm. repercussions of it. That's it good. went there. And at the end of it, I said, Hey, okay. Bottom line is, and it was a real drawn out process, but if you lose your practice, who are you? Well, I'm no longer, I'm, I'm, I've always been this. I'm like, that's not who you are. It's what you do. If your kids don't talk to you again, who are you? If your husband leaves you, 
who are and we went through all these wow, things. I go, good. so if all that's gone, like you said, it's just you in a room and it's dead quiet. Who are you? And she's like, started crying. She goes, I don't know. I said, well, let's figure out who right. you are and jump in. And guess what? She didn't lose her practice. Her kids talked to her. You know, like the things she was so worried would I go like away. And it, was, it was really cool. So that's what I do. And what I do is try to help people figure out who the heck they are. So I'm going to steal that from you okay. now. Steal so it. You can use you can use bringing attention. Take that and run with it. I'm going to use who are you. I'm going to actually do a, a, a post on social media and I'll tag you on it. Because I, you're right. I, I was that pretentious guy. I was that guy seeking millions. And I was that guy looking for approval by my peer group and by society. Now I still am, but it's a whole different context. I mean, anyone's a liar if they say, well, I don't care. I, I do care. I, I I'm trying to make people make better or show people to make better choices under difficult situations. So obviously, you know, I want people to care about what I do. Uh, and I, and I care what I look like and all that. I mean, we, we all do to, to an extent, but it's like the old Jeff Johnston, Rob, man, I, I just, that person died when Seth died, that person went right along with him. Uh, and I don't ever want to go back to that person. I don't want to rehab myself back to that person. I like the place I'm at today. I miss my wife. She was a beautiful soul. She was a great mom. I couldn't have married a better human being. She was nine years younger than me. Uh, we, we raised boys. We built a business. We traveled the world. We had a great life. The way it ended is how it's got me stuck. And that, and that, that's my motivation. That's my, I have a quote on the back of all my shirts that we, that we sell at our events. Purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. And you got to say that a few times. Purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. Yep. I like, I, I, really I, I like got that. tied up when I was saying that with my tongue, but I hear what you're saying. I love it. It's, 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 it's no, I like that because if you think about the three P's, it's like, okay, what's the one thing that I think we're missing as human beings. And I think in any, any, uh, poll question you ask, it's meaning and purpose. And that's what the, who you are question is. You're stripping away everything around you. What's your meaning yeah. and purpose? You know, it's, it's an existential inner analysis. Yeah. Okay. And um, I just really think that's one area of this whole journey I'm on where I'm really comfortable now at 56 years old saying, I know what my personal mission statement is when it comes to my meaning and purpose. I know what it is. And we as advocates need to get people to turn that lens on themselves. And when in one practice in meditation that we do is we, we view, we actually try to see our head and it's a hard thing to do when your eyes are closed and you're meditating to actually try to see your head. It's, it's almost like you try for a few seconds and you kind of quit because it's stressful. It's like, you know, you're standing outside of your body, look, not looking at your arms and legs, but try to look at your head. And, uh, that gives you that perspective that, you know, not a self-awareness, like I'm going to worry about what I look like. It's like when I, when I'm trying to talk to people, I'm consciously thinking about, you know, making sure I'm very hypersensitive of the conversation we're having, like living in the moment. That's what that whole idea of looking for your head is living in the moment. So, um, anything you want to throw in about what else you do, how people can reach you, uh, words of wisdom you would say to somebody who's really struggling right now? Well, if, if you're struggling, just find someone to talk to. I mean, if sitting in our own 
stuff by ourselves is a very scary and lonely place, especially for men. And so find mm. a, find a brother, someone to talk to and say, man, I'm just struggling with this. Please don't judge me. I just need to talk. I'm not looking for a response. I just need to tell you where I am and just get someone that can actually hear you and listen to you without the judgment. Right. I think so many people listen with judgment instead of just listening with listening, right. listening with love. So find somebody to start talking. I mean, get resources, reach out to Jeff. I mean, reach out to myself, just find a resource locally um, to connect with somebody. So that's, that's probably the biggest thing right there is to find someone you can process your stuff with. What's the name of your book again and how people can reach it, get it. Yeah. It's the addiction intervention book. It's on Amazon. And, you know, last night I actually just did this This is the easiest way for people to figure out what the heck I do. Cause I do a lot of different things. <laughs> so I just did the, have you, have you ever done link tree? It's where you can put no. all the links that deal with you. Like Linktree is what it's called. So it's, I don't even know the domain name, right? It's called, okay, link. I'm going to try this real quick on your show. Linktree, it's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Rob Lohman. And that's L-O-H-M-A-N. <laughs> we'll see how that works. Okay. I don't know. That's a whole new thing, but um it has all my links to my interventions, my podcasting, all those things. So, uh, but you can find me on social media, Rob Lohman, L O H M A N. Um, you can just call me up at nine, seven, zero, three, three, one, four, four, six, nine. If you're struggling, just call me and text me and I'll see what I can do to help you. And what I didn't tell you in the beginning of your show, which I should have told you was I got a free gift for your listeners. If they want to go grab it, it's a free, it's awesome. free recovery book.com it's at freerecoverybook.com and it's, it's actually the book we just talked about. They can download the PDF version and if they want to order a copy, copy online to Amazon, they can do that, but it's freerecoverybook.com. Currently it's my best selling book. It, that link will change throughout the years. Um, it's just a way that gives something and say, Hey, this can hopefully help you figure out a next step to take in your own life. And just reach out if you need some help. Well, listen, I'm really grateful that our paths crossed uh, when they did um, and that we've had an opportunity to share, you know, two stories of what we could say were very traumatic experiences, yet we both came out of it from the ashes, as I like to say, uh, better, not bitter, you know, yep. uh, but if we don't daily work on what we need to work on, then we could go down the bitter road which you and I both have before, yeah. uh, which a road I don't enjoy. I always joke. I go down to the mailbox of the bitter road and I go right back to the better road. <laughs> it's like, you know, um, because it's okay to temporarily go down the bitter road just to make you grateful and humble for what you have, you know? Yeah. And I'm a big per I'm a big, I love the letter I. Okay. I just love the letter I. So as you talk about bitter to better, right? What's the one thing that has to change if you want to go from bitter to better? I do. So the I becomes a knee and now we're better. So if you want to change, it's up to you. I like that. Yeah. So it's, it's, I have to change to become better and the bitterness goes away. Yeah. Well, this is great. And I really enjoy, that was a fast hour. Um, really enjoy uh, talking with you and uh, I really hope that people reach out to you. Uh, and I plan on coming back to, free spiritual community on our living undeterred us tour number two next summer. We're in the process of getting that all together. So hopefully I can um, 
have you attend that event uh, when we come out there. So I'm trying to get Ryan on my podcast. I just sent him an email last night um, and let him share his story because, wow, what a what an amazing uh, organization they have in Denver, you know. Yeah, we all done a great job there, but we're we're all building things right to to help people find freedom, and we all have unique things that we do, which is why we got to keep doing this, interviewing each other, sharing stories, and saying, "Dude, I love it!" And uh, mm-hmm. so keep up the good work yourself, and um, maybe I'll drive around with you next year when you do twenty twenty three. I'll just I'll follow you around. <laughs> I'm not doing ninety five days. I tell you that that about Woo! killed me and my kids. It's like my two boys. Uh, we're doing probably 30 to 45 days, but it's going to be a lot more intentional. Uh, this first tour, we just kind of winged it and, um, some events didn't go real well. Some were amazing like Ryan's. So we're going to go back and kind of reward those uh, organizations that really partnered with us well, um, and, and bring a lot of attention to these issues. So listen, man, um, great meeting you and, uh, very much appreciate your passion and your advocacy for what you do. Keep up the good work. Thanks.